and take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. We're going to finish chapter 1 today and actually move into chapter 2 a little bit. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be continuing our series of messages that we started a couple of weeks ago of, through the entire book of Philippians. We're going to be here to the end of February. Just a quick note for those of you that are here in person and for those of you that are online as well. Next Sunday is a fifth Sunday, which means for us at First Baptist that it's a family worship Sunday. And so our um, first graders and up will be joining us in worship that day, sitting with their families. Um, we will also celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper next Sunday. And for those of you that are here and a part of uh, the worship service in person, that you will be able to come and we will have um, safe ways to do that here in the sanctuary. If you're online and you're going to be at home and uh, not being able to be with us in person, we will have, starting tomorrow, we will have the elements out that you can come by and get um, that are the all-in-one pack if you want to come by and get a few of those in order to celebrate home or you can you can celebrate at home just with some unleavened bread and some juice and so you can do that as well. Philippians chapter 1. Um, this week I was reading and uh, I saw where William Shakespeare wrote several plays involving King Henry V. Now let me just stop for a second. I realized that I may not have been able to say nine words that would make some of you less interested than those words. All right. All right, but hang with me for just a moment, all right? So he wrote several of these plays about King Henry V, and it starts when he's a prince. And he's immature, and he spends time carousing with Falstaff and drinking and living a meaningless life. But then his father dies. And he realizes that he is about to become king. And there is a new level of responsibility that suddenly falls into his lap. In fact, as he is at the bedside of his dying father, he says to his dying father, the king, you won it, you wore it, you kept it, and now you have given it to me. This idea that the king before him had won the victory, had kept it, had worn it well, and is now passing that on. And he realized it was not because of anything he had done. There was no worth in him that allowed him to become king. And as he says that to his dad, he then follows with these lines, and maybe the first time I've ever read Shakespeare in a sermon, but here it is, all right? He says, the tide of blood in me hath profoundly or proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea, where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. All right. I was probably wrong earlier about the words that could make you less interested. This probably worked just as well. All right. Here's the point. The point he says is this, is that the life in me was in vanity and without any kind of responsibility. Years I spent in vanity and pride. I don't think that's Shakespeare, but it's good, right? And then it says that now I understand that as this moment has come to me, as this time has come to me, that my life now has to be better and it has to be lived for something completely different because I've now been passed on the mantle of being king. Today we're going to look at the end of chapter 1 of Philippians where Paul is basically going to tell the people in Philippi, you now have a purpose and a reason and there are similarities to what's happening here where you may have spent years apart from the Lord, but now you are citizens of God's kingdom. 
And you ought to live as such. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, says this. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you and that you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is the sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. If then, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. There's a statement that he makes at the very beginning of this that I want to use as the foundational element of what we're going to do today. And it is simply found there in verse 27. He says, just one thing. Now, if you can remember back last week, if you were with us last week or watched online, if you can remember back to last week, one of the things that he talks about is that whatever's happened to me has happened for the advancement of the gospel. I'm good with that. Last week is when he says to live as Christ, to die as gain, that I'm torn between the two. I want to depart and go be with Christ, but I'm here to live for you. And he says, whatever it is everything is going to work out for good he says i'm going to remain confident in this and that my boasting will be in christ and that everything's going to work out for good that is paul's i'll fly away moment right like in the end it's all going to work out it's going to be great it's going to be awesome let's look forward to the future let's plan on how great it's going to be then he stops in verse 27 and says Just one thing. Now, the word that's used there in the original language literally means stop for a second because I have something important to tell you. One thing that could derail you from experiencing all that God intends for you to experience. Karl Barth says that it's like he holds up his proverbial finger and says, one more thing you need to do. And this is it. He says, as citizens of heaven... Live your wife worthy of the gospel of Christ. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word there that is written is literally be good citizens. The one thing that I have for you, the one thing that I need to tell you is to be good citizens. Citizenship was an important concept in their day and time just like it is in our day and time. Philippi itself was a proud Roman city. It was won by Octavius and would become a favorite of Caesar's and become a favorite to declare their citizenship. They were not only Philippians, they were Roman citizens. And in that day and time, that carried huge privilege. They were part of the world's strongest economy, the world's strongest empire. They were privileged people in that. They had rights. They had the ability to appeal to things. We know that Paul was a Roman citizen, and the part of the reason he ends up in Rome is because he has his case heard, and before he can be executed, he appeals to Caesar to have his case heard before Caesar. There were rights that came with being a citizen, and people were proud of that. And Paul is reminding them, 
that even though they were proud, rightfully so, of their citizenship and the world's largest, strongest empire and economy and the best place to be a part of it, that their ultimate allegiance and their ultimate citizenship was not in the Roman Empire, but it was in the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And he's reminding them that when it comes down to your allegiance to your earthly kingdom versus your allegiance to your heavenly kingdom, if the two of them ever clash, live a life worthy of your heavenly kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is telling them that they are to live in a Roman colony of Philippi, worthy citizens of their heavenly homeland. Which means that for you and me, who are citizens of one of the world's, if not the world's largest still, economy, beacons of freedom, and a great place to live, that we must understand that our American citizenship must never take away from or diminish our kingdom citizenship in heaven. And the moment that we begin to flaunt or use the citizenship we have in this country over and above our heavenly citizenship is the moment we have gone off the rails theologically. Our first An abiding allegiance is to the kingdom of God above all else. And it's not just where we place our allegiance. It's how we play that allegiance out. One of the tragedies, I think, in American culture over the last 20, 30, 40 years is that we have allowed ourselves as churches to be co-opted into the society and the culture of our nation more than we have attempted to take the culture of our kingdom of Christ into the nation. Now some of you hear that go, amen, amen, let's go. But I don't think you, I don't think you understand what I mean by that. Because it doesn't matter which side of society you find yourself fighting upon, what has happened over the last 20 to 30 years is the tactics that we have used have suddenly caused us to diminish the witness that we have for Christ. And any time we do something that diminishes our witness for Christ, then we have caused damage to what our kingdom citizenship should be about. And so if you're somebody that thinks what happened this past Wednesday has derailed the movement of God in this country because someone was voted out of office and removed, then you have placed your allegiance to a political figure over your understanding of the kingdom of God. In the same way, if you think that because of what happened Wednesday, we're now back on the right track and it's all because of who got installed as president of the United States and that is what brings us hope, then you have placed your allegiance into the hands of a political figure instead of the kingdom of God. And there are ways that we fight for issues and we fight for rights and we fight for what we think should happen, but the way we do it should be Evident that we are citizens first of the kingdom of God. And the question becomes for the Philippian believers, for you and for me, where is our allegiance? I do think it's interesting, by the way, that over the last 
30 to 40 years, there have been two kind of tracks of the modern Protestant church movement. There's what they kind of call evangelical and progressive. And what's interesting about those two tracks is if you look at what they teach and how they go, almost always those two line up identically with opposite sides of the political aisle. And the question becomes, are we creating the politics or the politics creating us? Paul says, live as citizens of the heavenly home and live lives worthy of that. We cannot allow our interaction and our allegiance to country and political party and social norms destroy our witness and devotion to our heavenly home. And the way we interact with people that don't agree with us, the way we interact with one another, the way we interact as a church has to show that we are kingdom citizens first. So what does that mean? Well, it means we follow what Scripture teaches us about the way we treat other people, even those that are different than us, think differently than us, are not exactly in line with where we are, both within our church and outside. And I picked three verses of Scripture just to remind us of what that is like today. And this is representative of broader scripture, but we go to the Old Testament from Micah chapter 6 verse 8 when asked, what is it that we are supposed to do? It says, he has told each of you what is good. That is God has told you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. And it is three things to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, love faithfulness, Love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When Jesus asked what it was like to be a commandment, what the command should be in our lives, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he gave us a very straightforward and simple answer. And that is that the first law is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That we are to live with love. That we are to live with love for our God and love for our neighbor. Somebody then said, so who's my neighbor? And by now you know the story that they told called the Good Samaritan. And it was not who they thought. The question was turned on its head from who is my neighbor to to whom can I be a neighbor? And then Galatians 5.22 tells us the attitudes that ought to be part of our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me just ask you a quick question, okay? When you see even people claiming to be Christians in the public sphere in arguments... How many times do you see them leading with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? The attitude of our hearts and the way that we interact ought to reflect the kingdom of God. And so Paul says to them, one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of of Christ. And then he gives them three ways that they live that out. And that's what we're going to finish with today. The first thing is that they need to learn to live with tenacity. 
That's not a word we often use in church kind of settings, but the idea is that you are going to remain tough and strong and that you're not going to let things get you down and you're going to keep on working. Uh, the, the Detroit Lions, who have not had a history of being a good football team, hired a new football coach this week. And what he said at his opening preference conference went viral because it's not what you hear head coaches generally say. When asked a question about what kind of team they're going to be, he said, we're going to be a team that never gives up. And you've heard that before. We're going to get knocked down. We're going to get back up again. But then he said, and sometimes we're going to get knocked down. And on the way up, we're going to take somebody's kneecaps out. We're going to bite them off like a dog. We're going to, and people are like, oh, okay, that's a little much there, right? Like, I don't know where you're going there. And he, and he he didn't stop there. You can go find it online. He just kept talking about biting kneecaps and scraping and scratching. And it was this visceral picture of somebody that gets knocked down but is not going to give up. Right? They're going to do everything they can. And Paul says that when you live as kingdom citizens, one of the things you have to realize is that you're going to get knocked down. But in the midst of that, he says to them, whether I come or not. So the idea is, I want to come. I want to come see you. I hope to come see you. I believe that God's going to let me come see you. But if not, you still have to live as God's called you to live. If you don't get your update that you want, if you don't get the emotional feelings that you want, if when you're in church it doesn't feel right always, or you read scripture and you're like, I didn't get my emotional lift today. You still live with tenacity and live out the kingdom principles of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Even when it doesn't feel like that kind of day. You still walk humbly. You still act justly. You still love mercy. You still love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. He says that if I come or if I don't come, I need you to together stand firm. That's Paul's favorite line about what it means to contend for the faith, is to stand your ground and to be steadfast in the hope that Christ has for you and contend together, work together for the advancement of the kingdom, for the glorification of God, that you're going to work together as you go out and you're going to face opposition both internally and externally. People are going to come against you from outside this place and people are going to come against you from inside. We have some idea that because Paul had not returned to them that there was a lack of true leadership there or let me rephrase that that what was happening in the in, in Philippi is that some people were saying hey if Paul didn't come back what are we going to do? How are we going to live? Paul's the one that really led us and there were others that said no we're good right now and they began to have conflict inside the church and he said that conflict inside the church can't help you to stand firm and it can't help you to move forward and it can't help you to contend together and there are going to be in Enemies from the outside that are going to come against you. And if you are broken internally, the external opposition is going to destroy you. He says you've got to work together to stand and to contend. He said that this is a bigger picture thing going home. That there are spiritual attacks that are going to come against you and your church because you are part of a greater in the spiritual realm battle that is happening. And we must remember that in the middle of that, God is still in absolute control of all that is going on. And as He is, we trust Him. And as we trust Him, and as we live out our lives in ways that are glorifying and honoring to Him, as we stand together as Christ's people for that, then we look forward to a time when He is coming again to declare His goodness. But until that moment, we will contend for the faith, and we will stand firm in who we are and what we know. 
for the glory of God and for the sake of his kingdom. And then he says, and this is where it kind of gets tough for some of us that like our comfort. He talks about verse 28, not being frightened in any way by your opponents, a sign of destruction for them to your salvation. Verse 29, he says this. Basically, he tells them that if you're going to live as a citizen of God's kingdom, you need to stand firm. And then he tells them, and you need to embrace suffering. Verse 29 and 30 are two of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. He says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. And you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul uses a different word for for there than he uses most of the time in his writings. And that different word gives a reason or because explanation. This is the reason verse 28 is true. Verse 28 is like this is your salvation is coming from God. Your hope is coming from God. And the way that you know that, the way that you can be assured that God is with you and on your side, he says, is because he has given you the opportunity to suffer on his behalf. Here's what makes this particular verse so challenging for me is that it says in there the word that he uses to say has been granted to you is a word that he uses in the rest of the New Testament to talk about the gift we've been given in the salvation that comes from God. He says you've been given a gift of suffering, of hardship, of struggle. It's a gift. I dare say that if you opened up your birthday gift and it was filled with struggle and hardship and misery, you would not be real excited, right? The proverbial lump of coal in the stocking is not what we have in mind. And yet, Paul says, give thanks to God for the gift of suffering. It's not the only place he says that. In Acts chapter 14, he's traveling through Asia Minor and he tells them that tribulation and trouble is necessary for them to enter the kingdom. In Romans, he says that your suffering is a condition of your glorification. He multiple times tells people to, in their prayers about their suffering, give thanks for their suffering. He's not the only New Testament writer to say this either. James, we know most famously in James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you suffer afflictions of many kinds. He says, if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be tenacious. You've got to hold on to it even when it doesn't feel like it. You've got to work to stand firm and to contend for the faith. And then when suffering or difficulty comes your way, you must embrace it. He gives us a couple of reasons why we embrace it. First of all, because that suffering, that difficulty, bonds us to Christ. It changes who we are. It helps us to identify with our Savior. It is the privilege we have of joining Him in what He went through for us. And the second thing is that it binds us to other believers. Who have similarly gone through suffering. Paul says then you'll understand. Like if suffering comes. Great for you. Give thanks to God. It's a gift. And you'll get to understand a little bit of what I have been able to experience. Now Paul doesn't say that like good. I want you to have to experience what I did. He's like you're going to see how amazing it is. When God shows up in the midst of your suffering. 
In the history of Christianity, American Christians are spoiled brats. We get upset if someone challenges us verbally or might not like us as much because of our stance for Jesus. And in the history of Christianity, people dealt with serious suffering for Christ. When I say the history of Christianity, I don't mean just 200 years ago. I mean today, currently, right now, in places around the world. Christians who declare Jesus Christ as their Savior are being persecuted and arrested and beaten and killed. And I don't believe that there is a persecution complex where we need to go out and seek persecution. We don't need to be jerks in order for people to not like us and to say things about us. But we must be willing to embrace any that comes our way for the glory of being a part of the sufferings of Christ and binding us to fellow believers around the world. I just want to tell you, we're going to get to heaven someday and we're going to talk to some fellow believers from China or Iran or Iraq who lived in the same time that we did and we're going to be sitting around the proverbial lunch table in heaven. I don't know if there really are lunch tables in heaven, but we'll be talking and they're going to be sharing their stories and you're going to be, wow, that's unbelievable. Like how you stood for the Lord in the midst of that when they burned you, when they shot you, when they arrested you, when they beat you, when they took your family from you, and they're going to turn to us and go, what did you suffer? Somebody made fun of me one day. As fellow believers in Christianity and who Christ is, we need to embrace whatever it means. And when I say embrace, what I mean by that is live under whatever persecution comes our way with dignity and the fruit of the Spirit on display for all to see. He says to be good citizens, you need to be tenacious, you need to embrace suffering, and then the last one, you need to seek unity. This is in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul starts giving these conditions. If there's any encouragement, if there's any consolation, if fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. And what he's saying there literally is, listen, if you really care about Christ, (laughs) if you want to bring hope, and joy to me, we'll get to that in just a second, if you have fellowship with the Spirit, if you truly believe in the things like affection and mercy, verse 2 is the only verb in this, by the way, chapters 2 verses 1 through 4 is one long sentence. It is not a grammatically correct English sentence. It is just a bunch of stuff put together, but there's one main verb in the whole thing, and it's verse 2 where he says, make my joy complete. And then he gives the way you can make his joy complete, and he tells them it's thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, if you want to make my joy complete, then you seek unity as a church that is gathered together in Philippi. Now, here's what's important about that. He says that that unity ought to come from the Spirit, so it's through God's leading, intent on one purpose. What's that purpose? Well, he's told us that purpose in chapter 1 and the verses we talked about the last two weeks. And that is the purpose of spreading the kingdom of Jesus Christ, of glorifying his name and telling others about him. That that is the unifying cry of every local church that is doing God's work. It is that we are here to glorify God and we are here to tell other people about him. And there are churches that are unified around other things. 
But if your unity is in something other than the cause that Christ has called us to, then it will be a shallow unity that will fall apart when difficulty comes. And so there are churches that are unified around shared history or pride in their buildings or being similar in social circles or a dress code or legacy programs or the traditions they have or a musical style that they prefer. But if your unity is based on shared history or musical style or a dress code or legacy programs or tradition and not on the purpose that God has called us to as a church, then you are unified around something that is not what God called us to be unified about. That everything that we do at First Baptist Church Goodlettsville should be about glorifying God and telling people about him, seeing people come to faith in him. And he gives us the way to do that. Verse 3 gives us the exact way that we do that. We do nothing. Nothing. You know what the word nothing means? Nothing. Out of selfish ambition or conceit. Wait, But I really like the pew I sit in. I really like this program that I've been a part of for so many years and don't understand why it's not getting the support. Or I really like this or I really like, I I want that. I want that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. First church that I pastored, when I got there one day, I was walking down the aisle, just thinking about the comfort that comes sometimes in churches. And about halfway down the aisle, there was a red dot on the pew. One pew had a red dot drawn on it. And I went to the associate pastor who had been there for 20 years at that moment. And I said, why is there a red dot on the pew in the middle on one side? He said, that's Miss Kate's seat. I said, what? He said, that's Miss Kate's seat. And she marked it so everybody would know it is her seat. Now, we laugh about that until somebody takes our seat. Amen? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. The requirement for a unified church is a selfless church. The biggest problem in most churches is that we have selfish churches. I want it to be like I want it. I want to hear the music that I want to hear and the preacher to preach a sermon that I like. And I want to be about programs that I want to invest in. And if I don't, if I don't get that, if I don't get the music or I don't get the preaching or I don't get the programs or I don't get this thing like I like, then there are many other places I could go try to find that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a guy that was living in Nazi Germany, literally trying to form a coup to overthrow Hitler as a part of his Christian witness, talked about the unity that must come from the Spirit. And he gave a long list, I'm just going to give you a few, that he said that if churches are going to be unified and not seek their own interests, these are some ways that that can happen. And the first one he says is we need to learn to hold our tongues and to never speak negatively about a Christian brother or sister. He would write about the fact that gossip is the sin within the church that we don't talk about and destroys more than we could ever imagine. He says we need to learn as individuals to listen long and patiently to one another. 
We need to learn to live our lives being interruptible, that it's okay for people to interrupt us, that our plans and our tasks are not more important than anyone else's. And we need to learn to serve without expectation of recognition or somebody doing it back for us. We put others' interest above ours. So when we gather together as a church, when we are serving together as a church, the question that we really need to ask is, was that beneficial for someone else? Not, was it good for me? One of the things that we talked about in this church, and we're planning, I talked this week with uh, Seth Taylor, who's the associate out at um, Journey Point in Colorado. We're planning to go out there this summer. I hope some of you are planning on joining us. We know that it's still kind of a weird time to be planning mission trips. We talked about it. They have a spot. They're ready for us. Uh, end of June kind of time frame. And we're going to begin to plan that way as if God's calling us to go. But we talk about when we go to mission trips. Some of you have been to New York. Some of you have been to um, Houston. Some of you have been to Colorado. Been to Brazil. Been to Chile. We've been all around the world. We talk sometimes how when we go on a mission trip, it's amazing to see how God changes our lives seemingly more than he changes the lives that we minister to. Can I tell you one of the reasons I think that is true is because when we go on a mission trip, whether it is to Colorado or whether it is to Lynch, Kentucky, or it is to Puerto Segura, Brazil, when we are there, we are most concerned that those people are taken care of before we care about our own needs. We are serving them without expecting anything in return. We are serving for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. We are singularly focused in that moment about what God is going to do in the lives of the people that we are serving. And we have let the concerns of our lives and what's happening to us, for the most part, fade away. And as we singularly focus on that as a group, sometimes groups from different places, different churches, different people, as we are gathered together singularly focused on that, it is amazing to see how God moves in and with us as church people who are focused on serving other people. Because that's the call on us as kingdom citizens. We live tenaciously. We are going to stand firm in what God has called us to do. And what God has called us to do is to embrace suffering and to move forward in unity for the glory of the name of God and for the spread of his kingdom. One of the things as your pastor that God has been laying on my heart that I've been praying about and I have been walking through and I have been seeking him intently about is the future of who we are as First Baptists. This pandemic, we're going to get back to semi-normal at some point. I was reading things today about how it has forever changed work environments probably. How it has changed for those of us that will live for the next 40, 50 years. It's changed how we do life probably more than we realize. And I'm asking the Lord, what does that mean for us as a church? We have a lot of people joining us online right now that if you would have told them a year ago, you will not be back in church for almost a year and you'll be watching online, they would have thought you were crazy. Like, I would never watch church online. That's not what church is, but we're here. And there have been a couple of clear things that God has given me, and these aren't going to surprise you, and they're not earth-shattering, but the ramifications of them can be. 
And that is that we as a church are to focus on our mission to glorify God and to lead people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to do. But what that means is that the things that we think have to be a part of that don't always have to be a part of that. And things that we don't expect to be a part of that may be. And over the next year to two to three, there may be a whittling process that happens with our church in order to get us super focused on what God's called us to do. And as that happens, my prayer is that we will be unified, even though we may disagree about how that's enacted and where it goes, but that we will be unified in, if this is what God's calling us to do, if this is what it takes to reach the next generation, if this is what it takes to reach our neighborhood, if this is what it takes to reach our region, then we are on board for that. No matter how uncomfortable it may make me as your pastor or you as a church member, Because our allegiance to our heavenly kingdom takes priority in our lives. And his purpose is the thing that we go after. No matter how much sacrifice it requires from you and from me. And my prayer is that as a church we will embrace that. Because if we don't. And we can have nice times and we can come together and have fun together and have a meeting and talk to each other and have good fellowship, if you want to use that word. But we will fail to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. My prayer is that we'll look back in two to three years and see how God whittled us into what he has called us to do in penetrating the darkness around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that we'll go at that together, whatever it means. Let's pray together. In just a moment, Amory's going to come and lead us with the band. As we sing a song of response to the Lord and what he's called us to do. And my prayer is simply that you will respond to him. Perhaps there are allegiances in your life that you need to recalibrate. Perhaps the way you're interacting with other people has not been through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Perhaps you realize there are some things in your life that when it comes to, for instance, the unity of our church and what we're called to do that you have held on to and said this is a must for a church, but you realize that is not part of the gospel mission that we have. Maybe you're listening today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And events in your life, personal life, or the world at large have caused you to re-examine where you stand with the Lord. Maybe for the first time you're wondering about salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've been exposed to it, but you've never taken that step. And this morning is the morning when you say, I want to be a citizen of heaven. I want to have a heavenly home, a forever home, an eternal home with Christ. You're going to admit to him today, it's simple. You just tell him that you're a sinner. You tell God that I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm somebody that has made terrible mistakes, has chosen to do things that are not good in your sight. And because of that, Lord, I have broken my relationship with you. Lord, today I'm asking that you would save me. I believe in your son Jesus who came and lived a perfect life and died for my sins. 
on the cross and rose again from the grave. Lord, I want to accept forgiveness from you freely as a gift of salvation. Maybe today you prayed that for the first time. If you did, man, I, I want to know that. I want to rejoice with you. I want to celebrate with you. Put a message in the comments. You can email me at pastor at fbcgoodlitzville.com. Call up here and tell us. And just let us know. If you're in the room and you did that, you can write a note and leave it where you are. Man, I want to rejoice with you in that news. Church, I'm asking you today, those of you that are part, that are followers of Jesus Christ, believers, part of our church, most of you who are members of our church, but some of you are thinking about it, been contemplating whether or not you should join. Church, I would just ask us, are we willing, as Hebrews 12 talks about, to throw off all that hinders us, and the sin that so easily entangles and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as a church looking to what He's called us to do, to reach the lost, to declare His glory, to build one another up and following Him, are we willing to throw off anything that hinders us from that? Would you pray with me in these days ahead, that God would reveal that exact way we live out that purpose in this community at this time. Heavenly Father, we pray that in these moments you would continue to move and speak to our hearts. That you'll give us the desire to do your will in your way. Would you make our desires yours? And that we will throw off anything that is encumbering us, that is stopping us, preventing us from doing what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.